What a good start this morning. It's so good, isn't it, to be together, to, to have these kind of times. I, I, I love to get together with friends. I love to get together with family. I love to share a good meal together. Uh, and particularly for me, one of the things, uh, my background growing up in an Italian family is uh, I had to learn how to navigate a good Italian dinner. Those of you who are Italian might understand this a little bit, but when I was young, I didn't quite understand this, and so as a good boy, I cleared my plate only to find the na- my nanny came in and refilled the plate. Uh, you know, what's, oh, okay, you need more. So she filled, I was, I was already full, so I kind of, you had to learn to kind of eat half of it, move it around the plate, kind of be strategic with it, and then they would would basically say, you know, my nannies would say to me, you know, what's wrong with you? How come you're not hungry? How come you're not eating? It's like, well, nanny, I have eight pounds of meatballs in me right now, and you're baking a, a, a turkey, and it was just kind of learning to navigate this whole uh, world. It's, and I've learned also that uh, in a good Italian dinner, you're never in a hurry. Okay, so it's not like how we do it today where my, my wife and I, we might spend 45 minutes or an hour, whatever, trying to make a nice meal. Our kids rush through it in eight minutes and ask to be excused from the table, right? And it's just like everyone's on to something next. Uh, this is just kind of like a gas station to fill up and, and do what's next. My, my great uncle came and uh, we were, he's kind of like the patriarch of the family. We're together, we're, we're eating this meal. We sit down at this restaurant and, and the uh, menus go out. And so uh, the, as the waiter comes, he orders some drinks, he orders a bottle of wine, he orders a bunch of appetizers, he collects all the menus, hands them back to the waiter and says, come back in 45 minutes. So we eat all these things and then the next part of the meal, be, we were there for over three hours enjoying this meal, kind of just waddled to our car afterwards. But that's the way you kind of uh, do the meal. If, if you have a tradition in your family and whatever, you can invite me over. We would both like to come uh, and, and enjoy your, your, your meal. But I love a great meal with friends. I love a great meal with family. I love when, when uh, we get together because it, it's not just about filling your gut. It's about the filling of your heart. And, and today we have a chance to share in a, in a very special meal together. Uh, we're entering into the final week of Jesus' life uh, at these last couple weeks, but today we're entering into the final day of his life. And as we enter into this, it's quite a, a, a significant day. In fact, uh, John spends five chapters from John 13 to 18. It's all about this last night of Jesus' life. But in this, it's, it's quite significant. They, they have gathered together to share a meal together, the Passover meal. And the Passover meal was, it was very special. It was celebrated and filled with symbolism and meaning and good food and drink. Everything about it had, had meaning and purpose. But in this meal, in this night, Jesus shifts it a little bit. He starts to share about new meaning and new tradition. And he begins to foreshadow what is to come. And it's an incredible thing. And so today we're going to be looking at uh, what we call the Last Supper, or maybe you call it communion or the Eucharist, or you may have grown up in some tradition where you learned it. But this final meal in which Jesus took bread and broke it, he took a cup and passed it. And we're going to look at what he said in that day because it's fascinating to see all the symbolism that is, is brought together in this time. It is quite special together. But to understand all the power of what this meal is about, when we come together and celebrate it, in fact, what we're going to do together at the end of the service, millions of Christians around the world have already done today. They have joined together in this meal as well. 
But you, you have to kind of uh, see this big idea. I think that's really helpful. It will give meaning to this meal, both today and when you take it in the future. And so our big t- idea today is this, that our life with Jesus reminds us of his sacrifice and looks forward to his return. This life we live with him is a chance to remember both what he's done, but also look forward to what he's going to do. And this meal is, is the perfect moment to understand that, that we're going to see Jesus is going to draw us to something that is going to be done for us, but he also wants to point to something he's going to do for us. And so today is a chance as we take this meal together, we remember. And remembering is important, isn't it? Uh, some of you, uh, if I asked you, where were you uh, 9-11-2001? You can tell me where you were. You'll remember that. That phrase, never forget, means something to us because it's true. We can tell you. I was dropping up my, we dropped our son off at school. A bunch of parents had met in the front of the school. We were trying to figure out how this was, what was happening. And then uh, the school was kind of scrambling to figure out how do they explain this to elementary school kids. And, and so you remember, it was a significant event, but in some ways, especially if you were here, you might have felt a little distant from it. And we, and we were trying to figure out how to grab some meaning that this was significant. It was unlike anything we'd ever experienced before. Just a few months later, the, the Super Bowl had happened. And during the Super Bowl, you uh, 2 uh, led the Super Bowl halftime show, and they did something quite incredible. Uh, during that time, uh, they, they began to play a song where the streets have no name. They, they describe, they say, we play this song when we want the audience to feel God has entered the room. And, and what they began to do is they began to s- scroll up the names of every single person who had lost their life, whether they were on a plane or whether they were uh, in the buildings or whether they were a first responder. And it was powerful because it wasn't just this kind of anonymous tragedy. You saw every name being mentioned, every name being remembered. And in that moment, it was kind of this, this moment where we're, uh, even NFL.com said it was the greatest uh, Super Bowl halftime show ever. I, see, I told you, you two is the greatest band ever. So uh, I tried to explain this. But in this moment, it was this moment to remember and to understand the significance that real people, real families were affected. And, and we, we were deciding in that season as a country that we were going to press on, we were going to win through this, and, and we were going to be better. And if you've been down to that area now, you feel that. You see the new, the new structures. You see the ways that we've remembered this. You see this, the idea that we were not going to be held down by that moment. And so remembering becomes a very important thing when we remember something significant. But remembering in that kind of way also does something. It can propel us forward. It can propel us towards a better future that we believe is coming. And I think you're going to see that same thing happen today. See, for 1,500 years to this point, uh, the, the, the people of Israel got together and celebrated this Passover meal. It's kind of interesting, as we're gathering together about 2,000 years later, they had, for, for 1,500 years, celebrated this meal. They were remembering something. And they remember the way that God had rescued them. And so I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14, and let's watch what happens in this, this night as Jesus and his disciples share this meal. And so uh, at, in preparation of this meal, uh, b- before this day, Jesus was in a home, and he was having a meal. And during this meal, uh, a friend of his, Mary, comes, and she, she opens up, she breaks open this jar, this alabaster jar of of, of uh, perfume of oil, and she begins to anoint Jesus. 
And some of the disciples we hear are upset about this because it's quite expensive. It's worth 300 days' wages. It's, it's very pricey. And, and they're upset, saying, she shouldn't have done that. This is extravagant. It's extravagant waste. We should have, uh, she should have donated it to us. We could have sold it and given the money to the poor. And Jesus knows two things. Uh, one, you don't, he knows that uh, the, particularly one in particular, a man named Judas, uh, was a thief. And he was in charge of the money, and he knew that. Uh, but Jesus allowed that to happen. But he actually was not interested in caring for the poor. He, was going, he wanted the money. Uh, but Jesus also said this. He said, what she is doing today is a beautiful thing. In fact, people are going to tell her story uh, and t- for the end of time. In fact, here we are, 2,000 years later, telling the story once again of this. And he says she's preparing him for his burial. He's foreshadowing the death that is about to come. He's saying, this is the moment where, where I'm getting ready to, to give my life. And it says that Judas, after this encounter, had decided he was going to turn Jesus over to the authorities, which became very interesting because when Jesus sent his two uh, disciples to go and to set up the Passover meal, he only allowed two people to know the instructions of what was going to happen. He said this, in fact, if you look at it, it's kind of interesting. It's almost like a spy uh, uh, moment. He says, you're going to go into the town. I want you to look for the man carrying a water jar. Now, for us, that doesn't seem like anything significant, but in that culture, only women carried water. And so to see the man who was carrying it, that stood out. That was a clue. That was a signal. That was find that guy. And so when he found, they found that guy, he would lead them to a place. They were to give basically like the password. The master says, uh, where are we supposed to prepare? Then the host would show them the room. Jesus is keeping this whole meal a secret. Why? Because he knows that Judas is looking for a chance to betray him, and he wants to have this meal. He is protecting this meal at all costs. No one except these two disciples who he trusts uh, immensely, uh, Peter and John, he, he uh, lets them in on this. He must have this meal. And so verse 17, it says, the evening comes. It says, when evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. Now, Mark doesn't tell us anything about what happened between 17 and 18, but I want us to think about that in a moment. But notice that verse 18, he he now picks up later in the meal. He says, while they were reclining at the table, eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they were saddened, and, and one by one they said, surely you don't mean me. It's one of the 12, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as is written about him, But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Now, between verse 17 and 18, we know a lot happened. In fact, what had happened was uh, when they entered into the home, uh, as you see, they recline at a table. You don't sit at a table with chairs. You would recline on your, on your elbow and your feet would kind of come out. Before a big meal, before a celebration, you would take a bath. You'd, you'd wash yourself. But the one thing that you would need clean is your feet because you're walking in sandals on dusty roads. So the lowest servant would wash the feet. And we know the story is that Jesus, no one offered to wash feet. It says that Jesus took off his outer garment, he wrapped a towel around his waist, and he took on that position of the servant. He went one by one to each disciple, and he washed their feet. Now, what is is significant, I think, for us as we think of this moment is we start to recognize 
Jesus has invited all his disciples, including his betrayer, Judas. He's invited him to be at this meal. And Jesus has knelt down right in front of Judas, and he has washed his feet. And and as this is going on, uh, you, you begin to understand something about the kingdom. Jesus had already had this conversation with them about the kingdom of God because they were fighting with each other over who was going to be great, who was going to sit in the prominent seats. And Jesus said, that's not how my kingdom works. In fact, a few chapters before in chapter 10, Jesus explained his, the nature of his kingdom. He said, he called them together. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Not so with you. He said, instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus sets up in in the days before, look, don't fight for prominence, serve. Because you're about to see the ultimate act of service. Because even I, the Son of Man who's supposed to come and and come in glory, I am coming to serve. I'm going to give my life and it is going to pay to free you. And Jesus sets this up. And so this, this, you have this kind of challenging moment in this because the disciples have gone from arguing over who's going to be the greatest to who among them has become the most vile. And they start asking one by one, it's not me, is it? It's not me, is it? It's not me, is it? And you wonder what it was like when Judas said, it's not me, is it? And they're sharing this meal and notice what it says that Jesus has, he talks about the one who dips his bread in with him. And, and so again, so you got to think about this meal. They're reclining like this. And, and so they're leaning on, their feet goes. And, and so in this moment, uh, we know from one of the other gospel accounts that John, it says the disciple who Jesus loved, leaned into his chest. So we know John is laying right here. He's reclining right here. He leans into Jesus and he says, who is it? And Jesus says, it's the one who I'm going to give the bread to. And so Jesus dips the bread in, and notice what he does. He doesn't reach across the table. Who does he do? He get, hands the bread to the person sitting right next to him. Where is Judas in this meal? He is sitting to the right of Jesus in the seat of honor. And Jesus has given Judas, this one he knows who has a heart of betrayal. He has washed his feet. He has given him the seat of honor. And we know this, he is loving Judas to the very end. Uh, Here's the first thing I want you to see. Jesus loves betrayers like us to the very end. To the very end. I don't know how you feel about Judas. I've always disliked Judas. But I think it's because I've always looked at the story one-dimensionally and always thought, how could you do this? I feel like how, how the disciples felt in the garden when Judas showed up. But reading it again this time, I saw something different. See, to share a meal together, to share, a, 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 to sit at a table in the, in the east, to have this kind of thing, this, this meant fellowship, this meant partnership, this meant camaraderie. It was a big deal. That's why Jesus was always being critiqued because of who he was eating with, that it was showing approval. And Jesus invited him in, and he has decided to, to, to uh, break the ultimate trust of one that he's broken bread with. 
But where is Jesus the whole time? He is loving Judas to the very end. The one who would betray him, he's given him every opportunity to repent. I think this is important because I don't know about you, but sometimes when I fail Jesus, I feel like he's kind of like, he doesn't want anything to do with me. It's kind of like when you, you know, you think back when you're a teenager and you break up with your boyfriend or girlfriend and you can't even be in the same room together, right? And it's super awkward. The whole, you have to walk in different parts of the school to get to places. And we can feel like that, can't we, with God, that there are times when we fail, we just don't even feel good about walking in this room. We don't want to make eye contact. We don't want to feel those things. And we feel like somehow I've done something that I don't know if I can fix it. And I want you to know, it's not, you, it's not about you fixing it. See, because when you enter into this space, I want you to know this, that Jesus kneels at your feet and he washes your feet and he leans against your chest with affection and says, I, I love you so much. He loves us to the very, very end. We sang a song, and I don't know if you noticed this or not. I thought it was so appropriate. I don't know how the Holy Spirit inspired the song and certainly the inspiration he gave Mitchell to, to pick the song. But uh, some people don't like the new songs because they think they're too repetitive. We said a phrase, your love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out of me. We said that phrase 12 times in that song, okay? Now, some of you are like, like, wow, this is super repetitive. This is a very important phrase to have repetitive going through your mind. That we have to be reminding ourselves. We need that loop running in our heart, in our brain. You don't give up on me. You won't give up on me. You will not fail me. You are with me. Because when we fail, we, we worry, we, we are f- afraid. And I pray that this, this loop will, will run in your heart. Because like Judas, I will turn on Jesus. I don't want to sometimes, and sometimes I do, because I want my way. But in those moments when I betray him, when I turn on him, and I feel like there's no turning back, there's no coming back, I am reminded that your love never fails, it never gives up. It never runs out on me. And so the first thing I want you to see is that everything in this meal is motivated by love. And this is important because the next thing it's important to see is that our sin brings death. Our sin brings death. This is an important part of this meal. So we can't underestimate the power of sin in the world. So even though the world doesn't think much of sin anymore, it's kind of a relative society. We kind of just said, well, it depends on what you think sin is and we can all disagree or disagree or agree to disagree, whatever. But however the world thinks about sin, it's important that you see in these moments what God feels about sin. So from the very beginning of creation, we saw that it was all good, right? And then it what? It all broke. And in that moment when Adam and Eve rebelled, where there once was no pain or death or sin, now all those things rushed into the world. But that's not the end of the story. In fact, we see from that very beginning God's plan of redemption, God's working. And so remember, they're hiding. Adam and Eve are hiding in the, in the bushes because they're, they're, they're naked, they're ashamed. They're, they, they don't want God to see them. And so there's an animal that he, he kills and he takes the skins of those animals and he covers up over them. And we see from the very beginning that when sin enters in, that an innocent third party will we'll pay a price of sacrifice. Right from the very beginning, we see this uh, substitute done on our behalf. 
Now, this is part of the meal that they experienced as well. So in the Exodus story, so they're celebrating the Passover in this meal. And the reason they're celebrating a meal called the Passover is to remind themselves that when they were slaves in Egypt, uh, uh, Moses had come and said to let the people go. And Pharaoh said, no, 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 no. And all the different things and plague, 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 plague until he got to the final plague. And God said, get everybody ready because he's going to give up on this one. And so what was going to happen was the angel of death was going to come and the firstborn of every home, uh, the angel of death was going to kill unless, unless you had taken a lamb, you had killed the lamb, you had made this meal and you'd taken the blood of the lamb and you'd placed it at the top and at the two sides of the doorposts. Now for the Jews, it wasn't enough just to be a Jew. They had to place the blood at the top and at the sides. And they had to place their trust that, the, that when the angel of death came, they were placing their trust in the blood of the lamb that the, the angel of death would pass over and move on. So in every home, there was either a dead child or a dead lamb. And when the angel of death had come and all of this had pa- happened, they, they were, uh, Pharaoh pushed them out, sent them out, and they left. And, and so there's this powerful thing that's happening in this moment. There's this, uh, this symbol of this lamb that, that takes their place and rescues them. But later the prophet Isaiah said this. He said that there would one who would come and be our sacrifice. Isaiah 53 says this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah says, one day, not an animal, but a human will come and be our sacrifice. And of course, they're thinking, how, who, how does this, what? And centuries later, when Jesus is about 30 years old, Remember, as he begins his ministry, as he bursts on the scene, John the Baptist sees him coming, and his words are, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Every lamb to that point had been pointing to the lamb that was going to come, the Lamb of God who would take on the sin of the world. And over the years, thousands of lambs were sacrificed, all of them pointing to this lamb, Jesus. So it's interesting that on Palm Sunday, they, uh, what, what people would do is uh, families would go in the afternoon and they would select the lamb that they were going to have uh, for their meal. It was kind of like a selection Sunday. But on that day, remember what's happening. Jesus is riding into the town and the people are crying out, Hosanna, praise to the one who saves. On the day the lamb is chosen, the lamb of God is entering into the, to the world. Is entering into Jerusalem, prepared, being prepared to be a sacrifice for the world. It's a powerful thing that is happening. And we see that because of him, the great love of God, that we are being brought back. His deep love is serving our deepest need. Now, in this meal, it had kind of a, a, all kinds of symbolism and meaning. There was, there was the uh, bread and spices and wine, and all these things meant something. But Jesus begins to depart from the script. So there comes a point where they begin, and Jesus is presiding over the meal. He's explaining and reminding them what each part of the meal is. But it says that when Jesus gets to this point, he says, uh, notice in verse 22, it says, while they were eating, Jesus 
took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He takes the bread and he takes the cup, and, and as Jesus holds up the bread, as he breaks it and passes it to them, it, it has a new meaning. Instead of this is the bread of our afflictions, he's saying this is my body, this is the, bo- this is the bread of my affliction. And they're sitting there not quite uh, understanding it, but they begin to pass the bread and they begin to rip off a piece, and he's telling them, take it, eat it, this is my body, remember me. And so in the same way as they would take these things and remember what God had done so long ago, now Jesus is preparing them for what they are to remember, what God is about to do. And it's interesting because in the, we see the bread and we see the cup and we see all the different things that are there. But one of the things that we don't ever see in any of the gospel accounts is there's no mention of the lamb. Now, whether there was a lamb on the table or not, we don't know. But it is quite interesting and it certainly seems that all the attention the gospel writers want you to have is this. The Lamb of God is, is, the, is leading at the table. Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he is the Lamb. He is the Lamb of the meal. And we see this way in which he is going to give his body and his blood. And because of what he does, instead of the wage of sin being death, there is through him life. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Sin brings death. But by his death and our faith in his work, we find life. And so from now on, we see him saying, I'm giving my life so that you can be saved. Don't remember the Passover lamb that was killed uh, so that you could be saved from death. Remember me. I and being killed so that you can be saved. And and as the church begins, they continue to use this imagery. They continue to remind, as as groups like us have have met, 1 Corinthians 5 says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Uh, Hebrews says, Christ was sacrificed to take away the sins of many people. Uh, 1 Peter 1 says, You are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot. Revelation 5 says, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. And Revelation 12 says, They overcame by the blood of the lamb. Uh, Just to mention, we're going to have a Good Friday service, uh, April 19th at 6.30 p.m. I want to encourage you to come because one of the things before Easter is we want to see this, go even deeper into this and see what it is. As much as we want to celebrate the resurrection, that he is alive and that he's coming, that we remember what he did, that he died in our place. He gave himself for us. Jesus pays for our sin. And when we receive the gift of salvation, when we follow him, when we turn to him, he says, I can cover you. I can cleanse you. I can protect you. I'll do it for you. And so everything points, this moment points, we will remember. We will remember what he's done. We will remember his blood that is shed. But he doesn't end there. He doesn't want to just end with remember back, but he points to something coming. Something is coming, and what's coming is glory. 
glory is coming. Now, I don't know how many of you lately have had a chance to go by the beach this past week, but it's been crystal clear to see Catalina, hasn't it? It's been kind of cool. Like, some days we, just, we, we know Catalina's there, but we can't see it. Other days, it's just like this last week, it's just beautiful. You just kind of see it and take it all in. In 1952, there was a young girl, her name was uh, Florence Chadwick, and she wanted to swim the channel from Catalina to the to California coast. Now, uh, she had already swam the English Channel, but that morning when she got in the water from the shore of Catalina and began to swim uh, in, there was a very dense fog. So she had to fight through all the normal things, the cold, the current, the, the waves, all those things. But what overwhelmed her was the fog. She couldn't see the shore. She couldn't see where she was going. And so at, uh, she got to this point uh, towards the end where she just begged to be taken out of the water. And so as she begged to be taken out of the water, her mom was trying to encourage her, no, 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 you're almost there, you're almost there. And she just couldn't do it. And so they finally, they brought her in and she found out when she got onto the boat, she realized that she was only a half a mile away from finishing the race or finishing the, the, the swim. And she said this the next day at a news conference. She said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Randy Alcorn wrote a book about heaven, and he writes, Consider her words. I think I, could, if, I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. And he writes, For believers, that shore is Jesus and being with him in the place he promised to prepare, where we will live with him forever. The shore we should look for is that of the new earth. And if we can see through fog and picture an eternal home in our mind's eye, it will comfort us, it will energize us so how do we see the shore in our mind's eye it's in this cup see jesus uh, said this he says this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many he said to them and then he said truly i tell you i will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when i drink it new in the kingdom of god And then they sung a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. So to say, I will no longer drink from this this cup until we drink it together anew, it's kind of like saying uh, 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 for us in some ways we might uh, say, uh, uh, I'm going to do this even if it kills me. Right, we kind of, that's our expression. But, but in, in ancient times, when someone says, I will not eat or drink until this is done, they're making a covenant, they're making a vow, they're making a commitment. And that's what Jesus is doing. He passes the cup and then he says, I want you to know something. I'm making a commitment to you. I am not going to drink from this cup again until I see it through, until I see this all through. And one day, you and I, we together, we are going to drink it together. We are going to celebrate together. We will have a banquet together. We will be in my Father's kingdom and we will celebrate. But know this, I will never give up on you. And he's making a promise. Twelve times we sang a phrase. You're never going to let me down. Does that mean you're not going to have disappointment in this world? If you were singing that thinking you're going to, that disappointment's over, you're going to be disappointed within probably an hour, okay? But when we're singing, you're never going to let me down. He is holding a cup to you saying, I will never let you down. I will see this through. I will promise to get you through this. You will get through. I will never 
let you down. And he's making a commitment to us. And Jesus is saying everything to this point, every other deliverance, every other sacrifice, all of the lambs, they've been pointing to this moment. And so he says, take and eat. He says, take and drink and remember me. And know this, when you take me in, I am committed to you. And I will get you through until that very day when we celebrate it all together. And so I want to close in this moment asking, uh, have you taken him in? Have you taken Jesus in? Jesus doesn't say, he, they're, they're, they're not spectators in this meal. He says, take and eat, take and drink. He's saying, take me in, take all of me who I am in. Let me cover over you. Uh, a couple years ago, National Geographic had a story and there was, they were uh, surveying this area that had gone through a, a tremendous fire and they came among this bird. This bird was kind of calcified. It was all burnt up and it was kind of an eerie thing to look at. And so uh, one of the rangers kind of wanted to just kick it over and just kind of get it out of the way. And the moment he kicked it, kicked it over, a bunch of little chicks ran out from under it. And in that moment, what they realized was this, is that that mother came over her chicks and covered them and was unwilling to move. No matter what came over her in that moment, that she was willing even to give herself in death to give her chicks life. And when you and I come to this meal, we remember that Jesus covers over us and everything that's supposed to hit us, it hits him. And he takes it on himself. And so I'm asking you, have you taken him in? Would you today place yourself under his protection, under his covering, under his sacrifice? When people would join in a meal like this, when when he took one cup and he passed that cup to the table, it was a chance for them to say together, we're in, we're with you. And as we prepare in just a moment, the ushers are gonna come, they're gonna pass to you the, the, the bread and the cup, if you have not made a decision yet to give your life to Jesus, why not today? Take with us the bread. Take with us the cup. Say to him, I'm with you. I don't know what that all means, but cover me. Protect me. I want life with you now and forever. And let him wash away your sins and fill you with his presence. So when the trays come, grab both, both the cups and in the, as the band's gonna play, as you're ready, when you're ready, take and eat. But I'm gonna ask that you hold on to the cup and when the time comes, Mitchell's gonna lead us to take the cup together. So hold the cup this time. If you've been with us lately, usually we have you do it on your own. Today, hold on to it and Mitchell will lead us and we'll take the cup together. So let's, let's pray. Jesus, we remember what you've done for us and we pray that uh, it would not fall short on us how precious this moment is. All that you've done, how great your love is for us. May you now just bring it into a, a, a great awareness. And anyone, Lord, today who's ready to follow you, may they hear the loving sound of your voice. 
saying, come with me. Come with me. May they find in you life forever. And so uh, bless this time. Amen. When you're ready, eat, and then Mitchell will lead us in the cup.